With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. There is somebody out there who is right now trying to hack you, and not just one. Amazon is trying to hack you, and Google is trying to hack you, and Coca-Cola is trying to hack you, and the Russians, and the American government, and the Chinese, they are all trying to hack you right now. In throughout history, this advice to people, get to know yourself better, this was always very good advice. If you said, nah, I can't be bothered about it, you didn't have competition. So it wasn't such a disadvantage not to know yourself. But now in the 21st century, what you need to realize, you have real competition. And, you know, people know so very little about themselves. And, you know, we have this myth of free will. But once you realize, no, my desires don't reflect my free will, they reflect all kinds of processes on the biological level, on the psychological level, which I don't understand, then you start being very curious about yourself. So as an individual, how do I start to cope with this? You probably want to just get, get started? Uh, yes, I'm ready. Okay. So once again, we have Yuval Noah Harari on the podcast. Uh, uh, Yuval, welcome back. Oh, thank you. It's good you, to be here again. You you came on after your second book, Homo Deus, but also to talk about your first book, Sapiens. And now this time we have 21 lessons for the 21st century. Um, each lesson is mind-boggling <laughs> how smart and how many questions you ask about where our species is heading and how we have to think about now. I think you described it as you know, Sapiens was kind of about the past, the history of uh, mm -hmm. the human species. Homo Deus is about the potential future, even the far future, where we are going as a species. But 21 Lessons for the 21st Century is how we can think about all these issues right now and, and potentially solve problems right now. Is that a fair, yeah. broad macro assessment? Yeah, it started with the past, then the future, and now it's time for the present. And I, I want, if it's okay, I want to just quickly talk about review sapiens just to kind of you know demonstrate the way you think because yeah, sapiens yeah, is such certainly. an interesting book i mean there is a close connection between the books i mean the the, the new book 21 lessons it, it really takes the insights from the previous two books and bring them to bear on the present moment so okay so we talked about neanderthals and we talked about cyborgs what does this tell us about brexit and about the current uh, crisis in the economy and, and climate and so forth. Yeah, and I mean, you deal with a lot of issues. You deal with, you know, where are we heading in terms of how much controlled data is going to have over our daily lives? Mm -hmm. uh, will, will the middle class turn into a useless class as data and automation kind of take control of basic jobs? Um, what's the role of, of uh, liberalism as a philosophy for guiding governments when there might be 
humans with more capabilities than others due to, to control over data. There's many, many um, questions you ask. And I think questions even more than answers, which is, which is always interesting. Yeah, it, it's a book of questions. It's not a book of answers. It's not like, okay, read this and you know what you need to do uh, in the world. It's more like, let's open a discussion yeah. about what we need to do. And uh, actually, let's focus the discussion because we are having a lot of discussions and many of them are about the wrong subjects. Well, well, it's interesting, and I want to I want to get to that in a second. So today, uh, Bill Gates actually in the New York Times wrote uh, a, a great review mm -hmm. of your book, and I'm just curious: Does Bill Gates ever call you on the phone and say, <laughs> "Hey, Yuval, what do you think of this?" Maybe he calls Itzik because I don't have a phone. <laughs> so, but uh, as far as I know, no, uh, he hasn't called us yet. You you don't have a phone? Uh, no, no, not, not a smartphone. I have a landline. But nobody knows the number. You have a landline. Do you, does it have? A, is it the kind of dial where you have to dial all the way around in a circle? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> it has. It has. You press numbers, but I don't have a, a smartphone like a mobile phone. Are you trying to keep away from social media? Um, I'm trying to to conserve my time and attention, and it's it can be such a draw, such a distraction. I don't think I would have the time to write books if I would uh, have the smartphone. I, th I guess that's true because a lot of people use social media to promote their ideas. But for you, you promote, you're able to promote your ideas through books that are widely read. I mean, they've been read by millions of people, so you don't really need to put an extra. Oh, I have social media. I mean, I have a Facebook account and a Twitter account, and uh, uh, so it is useful. I mean, to 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 get to people. I mean, you you do need to live in the 21st century. Um, lesson but, number one. <laughs> yeah, no, lesson number one. But uh, I, I try to. I, I'm very careful about preserving my time and my attention. Attention is maybe the most important resource uh, at present, and uh, many devices like smartphones are really designed to grab your attention, to take, uh, to take over your attention. So that that can be dangerous sometimes. I love it. So, do you, and you don't read the daily newspaper. Uh, Hardly ever. I I I I read long books. I mean, I I distrust short texts. Yeah. <laughs> so if I really want to understand something, I try to find a good book about it. Well, clearly, because part of writing these books, particularly, they're they're so dense with knowledgeable information, and I don't mean dense in a bad way. I mean dense in a good way. You tell them so many stories, but you have to do kind of. There's a huge pyramid of research underneath, mm -hmm. so you must be. Just constantly informing yourself, not from the latest news, but from you know years and centuries of of archaeological research, uh, historical trends, and so on to to do the research for these books. Yeah, um, I I start I start reading a lot of books all the time. I drop like ninety something percent of them after ten pages. If I didn't learn something really interesting or new after ten pages, I say ah. There must be some better book out there. I know it's not necessarily the best policy uh, and not necessarily the best policy for everybody, but um, th that's my method. And Actually, that uh, might not be a bad policy because if they can't say what their main core idea is that they're trying to educate you with in 10 pages, what's the odds that they're going to do it in the Yeah, rest this of is the exactly my way of thinking. So maybe with things like, I don't know, Tolstoy's War and Peace, you can't, you can't have this policy, but at least with most nonfiction, it doesn't have to be the main idea, but you need to get some new insight, some new perspective from the first few pages. Otherwise, my impression is it's unlikely to come later on. And then even if you learn something in those first 10 pages, what's, I feel like a lot of books 
uh, somebody has a good 10 pages they submit to a publisher, mm -hmm. and then the publisher says, listen, this was great. We need another 300 pages now to put it in a bookstore. <laughs> What's the odds that you're going to learn that much more in the next 300 pages? Um, well, in, in, in most cases, I mean, I can drop a book after 100 pages. That, that that's also happens. If I read the first 10 pages, it looks very interesting. And then I keep reading, and after 100 pages, I realize, okay, so... It, it wasn't what I expected, but uh, my main message is, is that really I, I, I focus on a very broad spectrum of, of material, and the way to manage it is to try to stick with something that uh, really changes the way that you, you see the world. I mean, this is kind of the, of the balance. I mean, if, 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 if you're going to... If you read just one or two things every week, instead of many, many different articles, at least these one or two things should be uh, profound and important in some way. Yeah, you bring up an interesting point because this is related to your writing. I feel like you don't write something unless you've really thought about how the current ways we think about an issue need to at least be questioned. Mm -hmm. And so you raise the question. So for instance, in Sapiens, you bring up I'm going to skip to the middle, but you 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 bring up the really interesting point that in 10,000 BC, the so-called agricultural revolution, where mankind starts harvesting and farming wheat, was actually a, a negative to the species in many ways. It was a positive in that we could feed a billion people, mm -hmm. but it was a negative in that we suddenly um, changed our diet to just focus on a wheat-based diet instead of plants, vegetables, animals, what we were doing before, and that our brains might have even shrunk as a result of not being aware of, you know, the three or five mile radius around us. We're just sort of focused on the, the very specialized farm work we were doing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that led to, you know, city-states and kingdoms and wars and so on as we kind of, you know, fought each other for resources. So all this became like a net negative. Uh, basically, for most people, life just became harder. Uh, of course, if you're a king or if you're some high priest or even a philosopher, then life was relatively good and, and better in many ways than as a hunter-gatherer in the Stone Age. But most people weren't kings and weren't aristocrats. They were uh, peasants and, and farmers and herders, and their life in many ways was, was much harder than before. Uh, physically, you work much harder. The human body evolved for millions of years in adaptation to climbing trees and running after rabbits and things like that. And suddenly you find yourself from sunrise to sunset just plucking weeds and carrying water buckets from the river and harvesting and grinding corn. And you see it in archaeological remains that uh, people begin to suffer from all kinds of problems in their backs, in their necks, in their knees. And uh, so, so the body suffers from the transition. Also the mind. Life as a hunter-gatherer for most people are far more interesting. If you have to choose even today between going to the forest to look for mushrooms or uh, carrying water buckets from the river all day or working as a cashier in a supermarket all day, I think that going to the forest to look for mushrooms is far more interesting. I mean, even today... Particularly depending on what mushrooms you're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> Even if you look just for the ordinary kind, the edible ones to fill your stomach rather than to change your mind, still it's it's more interesting. I mean, even than most people, what what most people do today. 
Uh, of course, it comes with all kinds of, 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 of difficulties and, and dangers. In the forest, you have snakes, you have tigers, you have to be alert all the time. But that also means that uh, just by necessity, you develop kinds of alertness and sensibility that most of us have lost over the last 10,000 years. When you go to the forest to look for mushrooms, you have to be extremely present. You have to be aware of every sound, of every smell, because this can be an, a, a dangerous signal, a warning signal that a tiger is coming. If, on the other hand, you today go to the supermarket uh, to buy your groceries, you don't need to be so alert. Uh, there are no tigers lurking between the cornflakes or whatever. So you can Tony just... the tiger. I've <laughs> yeah, that's seen. true. That's one tiger that, that lurks there. <laughs> but he's not going to eat you. You're right. going to hit him. Uh, um, and so you can just go there and, and you know stare at your mobile phone while do, you're doing it, texting messages and not even being present in the supermarket. So in terms of these basic human skills, to be present, uh, to, to be able to listen to be able to smell, to be able to taste. Um, life was much more colorful and rich uh, 10,000 years ago. And yet history will, will sort of pose this as a positive because we were able to, to grow to a civilization, a species of 8 billion people. Yeah, the species benefited enormously. If you look at it from the viewpoint of the species, then it's a net gain. But if you look at it from the viewpoint of a three-year-old Chinese peasant girl who is dying from starvation uh, uh, a thousand years ago, then it doesn't look so, 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 so good. I mean, people as individuals paid an enormous price for our collective advance as a species. And most history books, of course, celebrate the advances of the species and tend to forget about the hard life of the individuals that make, make all this possible. And you, you start, I, I want to ask you a little bit more about the thinking process of kind of going against these thousands of history books, but you start to make almost a parallel point about today's day and age and where the species is going mm. with the rise of data. Yeah. You could almost compare the rise of big data and AI and the benefits, the, the, the touted benefits to the species is the same as the agricultural revolution, you know, supposedly benefited the species in 10,000 BC. Mm -hmm. So, so how do you, you know, we all grew up, you know, reading the same more or less textbooks or ideas. How do you then uh, kind of come up with this twist that instead of humans domesticating wheat and having this huge advance, I mean, mm -hmm. it's called the agricultural revolution for a reason, you reverse it completely that wheat domesticated humans. Yeah. Just, Maybe you well, can't actually, answer this. This but... particular idea that wheat domesticated humans comes, it's not my idea, it comes from Jared Diamond's work. And many of the great insights or ideas of, or li like this one, they actually, uh, the trick is to change the perspective. Uh, you, you tend to look at a story from one perspective. The easiest thing you can do, easiest in, in the conceptual sense, of, of thinking, okay, let, let's try it right to, to find a new insight, is change your perspective. Don't look at it from the viewpoint of the king. Look at it from the viewpoint of the peasant. Don't look at it from the viewpoint of the humans. Look at it from the viewpoint of the cows or of wheat. And every time you change the perspective, you see a completely different world. And this is a trick that you can use when you make films, and it's a trick you use when you write history books. So, so like... I actually want to get to the 
70,000 BC that you mentioned in Sapiens, but let's skip ahead. Mm -hmm. In this book, what were some of the perspectives that you kind of, so again, the book's called 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. What were some of the perspectives that you switched in order to get some insight? Well, one switch is uh, to switch from the perspective of humans to the perspective of algorithms. How, how would algorithms understand humans? And the idea here is that you can understand, we are used to understanding humans from the inside out, from our own experience, how we experience the world. Um, but when you look at us from the viewpoint of a big data algorithm, we actually look like a huge organic or a huge biochemical algorithm that can be hacked and can be deciphered. And this is something, maybe the most important thing to know about life in the 21st century is that we are now hackable animals. And this is something that most people refuse to accept because it completely contradicts their perspective of the world. They view the world from inside out. And from that, from that perspective... Uh, nobody out there can really understand me, can really understand the rich inner world that I'm experiencing. Uh, my desires, my choices, they reflect my free will. They re reflect my human spirit. This is something that a computer will never be able to understand. And you see it, for example, in almost all the science fiction books and movies that, you know, the robots are rebelling and trying to kill all the humans. Oh, the aliens are coming from outer space with their gigantic spaceships and laser guns and whatever. And humans are, th th you think that that's it. Humankind has absolutely no chance to resist the aliens or the, or the rebelling robots. But in the end, the humans win. Why? Because the robots can't figure out something called love. They just don't understand it. So they lose because they don't understand how the humans sacrifice one another or sacrifice themselves for one another because of love, something like that. And, you know, this is extremely um, self-centered and, and childish to think that, oh, they will never be able to understand love because from the perspective of the algorithm, um, well, this is just another biochemical process. If the computer can diagnose cancer, it can diagnose love. It's just a different, uh, different biochemistry. I, I love the parallel, though, of viewing love as a disease that could be <laughs> potentially cured. But you, if you think about it, humans have been manually hacking this for, let's say, 100 years since the beginning of advertising. So mm -hmm. yeah. we walk around the street, we're flooded with thousands of advertising but, images a day. But again, we the kind of, 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 of mutual pact is that uh, we know this, but we don't know this. We know that we are flooded by all these messages, but the common understanding is that the customer is always right. And it's the feelings and whims and the choices of the customers that the entire economy is built to satisfy. And the idea that no, but the choices of the customers, they have been programmed by the advertisement industry. You can't say this. I mean, we know it. Part of, our, part of us know this. Because there's but testing, there is, hmm? you know, there's testing of ads to yeah. see which works. And so there's some algorithmic aspect even over the past, you know, 20, 30 years, but it, it's intensified over the past five years. Exactly. I mean, the thing is that what began as a kind of carpet bombing uh, strategy now becomes precision-guided munitions. 
So you don't show the same ad to everybody. You tailor the ad to the unique weaknesses and biases and cravings of the individual. You hack the individual instead of working by statistics. Well, and, the, and this is your point in the book that that free will itself is kind of a myth. I mean, we, we already know that a lot of cognitive biases that we have no control over shape our decisions, but we still mm-hmm. think we have largely more control over them than they, than they have over us. But your point is that with data, we'll be able to analyze, well, what music triggers what parts of the brain, mm-hmm. what images trigger what, you know, the sales or greed parts of the brain and, and so on. So that the first level is kind of data used for advertising, but the second level might be data used for much more insidious decision-making. Yes. Um, if you get to know a person well enough, if you get to know a person better than that person knows himself or herself. And that's even on the inside, how the brain works yeah. and everything. And you know, people know so very little about themselves. Both on the biological level, certainly, how many people really understand their brains, uh, but even on the psychological level, on the mental level, um, we have an entire profession of therapists who are just trying to help us get in touch with ourselves because it's so difficult. And if you go and, and practice something like meditation, then at least when, when I started practicing meditation, I was struck by how little I know. I know almost nothing about my mind. And, you know, we have this myth of free will, which in a way serves as a curtain uh, that hides the reality about ourselves, that actually um, dampens our curiosity. Because if you really believe in the myth of free, of free will, my desires reflect my freedom. I chose these desires. I chose everything I, that, that I do. Then you know everything. You understand yourself. You understand your desires. You know where they are coming from. There is nothing to investigate. But once you realize, no, um, my desires don't reflect my free will. They reflect all kinds of processes on the biological level, on the psychological level, which I don't understand, then you start being very curious about yourself. And I think that, you know, in the 20th century, in, in, in throughout history, this advice to people, get to know yourself better, this was always very good advice, that you don't really know necessarily why you want this or why you want that. But for all of history though you had all these Socrates and Buddha and Freud telling people, know yourself, if you said, nah, I, don't, I, I can't be bothered about it, you didn't have competition. Still, you were a black box to the rest of humanity. So it wasn't such a disadvantage not to know yourself. But now in the 21st century, what you need to realize, you have real competition this time. It's not like in the days of Socrates. If you don't get to know yourself better, there is somebody out there who is right now trying to hack you. And not just one. Amazon is trying to hack you, and Google is trying to hack you, and Coca-Cola is trying to hack you, and the Russians, and the American government, and the Chinese, they are all trying to hack you right now. Right, and so, and there's different, again, there's different layers. So for instance, Amazon's trying to hack you in the sense of, okay, Yuval bought this, 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 and this, and mm-hmm. our AI and our data about people similar to Yuval show that he will probably buy this next. Yes. And so that's what they'll start to show you. And then maybe five years from now, 
they'll send it to you yesterday what you were going to buy tomorrow. Yes. Um, what's what's the next insidious level of that? So that's kind of almost a good thing. Mm-hmm. When does it start to get darker? Well, it's uh, first they sell you a product. And it really started with selling products, all these, all these methods. But now these methods are also being used to sell you politicians, which is a bit more insidious than right. selling people products. Uh, the next step is um, to start manipulating your desires instead of just fulfilling them. Yes, he wants this, but we can actually make him want that instead. And then it really becomes kind of the twilight zone. That if you realize that actually my desires, they do not reflect my free will, they reflect a more and more sophisticated system of manipulation, then what can I trust if I cannot trust my own inner, most authentic uh, desires and wishes? And again, this was a problem throughout history. Throughout history, if you really looked hard, you would have realized that many of your desires, they come either from biological bugs or from cultural manipulations and propaganda and so forth. But still, you were in a privileged position. Nobody out there could really understand you better than you understand yourself. So you're saying so, like things like nationalism or to an extreme fascism or mm-hmm. on the other side, liberalism or before that religion were different man-made stories to potentially... Um, take control of your free will in a way yes. that the kings or whoever could control. But now it's with digitalism, for lack mm-hmm. of a better word, it could get deeper. They actually can yes. get inside of you in ways that you can't say no to. Exactly, because simply because they understand the biology better, they understand the brain better, they have better devices to monitor what's happening there. And they are going to have better devices to change what is going on there. So what you tried to do a thousand years ago with the priest preaching from the pulpit, you will be able to do in a far more invasive way in 10 or 50 years with all kinds of brain-computer interfaces uh, and, and direct biological interventions. So it's not new. What, what do you mean by direct biological intervention? As as you understand the biological system better, you can, uh, you know, like with every system, once you understand how the system works, you can start changing it in, in, in more and more ways, ranging from more sophisticated pills to change your mind, all the way to genetic engineering, which changes the basic blueprints of, of the human brain and through that the human mind. I mean, after all, if you think back 70,000 years ago, if we go back to the cognitive revolution, what made Homo sapiens different from all the other human species around, like the Neanderthals, and what really transformed us from a species of unimportant apes into the rulers of the planet was quite minor changes in our DNA, which resulted in the restructuring also on a relatively small scale of the human brain. The brain did not get bigger, it just got connected, wired in a slightly different way. And this was enough to turn this insignificant ape 
into the ruler of the planet. And and just to just to mention, I mean, I thought this was so fascinating in, in Sapiens. Seventy thousand years ago, the the cognitive revolution. You mentioned how hum, Homo sapiens, as opposed to even other uh, branches of of human like Neanderthals, developed the ability to to essentially use imagination for storytelling and gossip, mm -hmm. and this allowed us to work in bigger groups than just tribes. We could yeah. even work in groups of millions, and that allows us to conquer the world. Yeah, and well, it, it, would, do you think it was just mutations, or what do you think As happened? far as we understand, I mean, the, the, basic, the basic fact is that we control the planet because we are the only mammals that can cooperate on a very large scale. No other mammal can cooperate flexibly on the scale of thousands and millions. And if you examine all these large-scale human corporations, what you find is that they are based on storytelling and on fictional and imaginary entities. We can cooperate with millions of strangers because we all believe in the same fictional stories about gods, about nations, about money, about corporations, all kinds of things that exist only in the imagination. Right, and you 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 mentioned a great example where uh, uh, you know ISIS could destroy a town, but they'll save all the dollar bills yes. they find, even though they hate America. Mm -hmm. If it has George Washington on the bill, mm -hmm. they'll keep it because we have this belief in the story of the American of the dollar. dollar. Yeah, I mean the dollar is is a it's a completely worthless piece of paper when we look at it from the perspective of a chimpanzee. You cannot eat a dollar bill, you cannot drink it, you cannot wear it. There is nothing that a chimpanzee can, can do with a dollar bill. And the same goes for Homo sapiens. There is nothing really useful that you can do with a dollar bill. So why is it so valuable? Because we have these most amazing storytellers in the world, not the ones that, that win the Nobel Prize for Literature, but the ones in the Federal Reserve. And they tell us this amazing story that you see this, this green piece of paper, this is worth a banana. And as long as everybody believes this story, it really works. I can go to a complete stranger whom I never met before, give him this worthless piece of paper and get a banana in exchange. And this is how the world works. Why do you think other hominids around 70,000 BC, and there, there were several different kinds out there, including Neanderthals, why do you think they didn't develop this storytelling ability? As far as we know, it's, it's pure chance. As, uh, to the best of our understanding, what you have is some chance mutation in the DNA resulting in small changes in the internal structure of the brain, which give rise to new cognitive abilities such as the ability to create and believe fictional stories, which on the face of it sounds like a very minor and insignificant ability. Uh, but actually, it turned out to be maybe the most important ability that we have. We can trade with billions of strangers because we believe in the dollar bill and the chimpanzees can't. And this is why we control them. And it goes all the way back to the Stone Age, um, in the Stone Age also, we have no evidence of trade between different Neanderthal bands. As far as, like, you, you find, you have artifacts made by Neanderthals, 
but they are always made from material like uh, flint stones that are found in situ, in, in the place where they lived. But with sapiens, you find artifacts made from material which was brought from hundreds of kilometers away. So there was trade. Now, how do you, in order to have trade, you need trust. You meet in the middle of the jungle of the savannah this strange ape whom you, you don't know him or you don't know her, and, but you need to trust him or her to, to trade with them. So what do you do? You tell a story. Uh, the, the most basic story, as, as far as we can tell from anthropology, is an ancestor's tale. Yes, I don't know you, but actually we are both descendants of the same great ancestor who lived a couple of generations ago. And if we both believe this story about the ancestor, we can trust each other. And amazingly, it's still the story on the dollar because you have an ancestor there. Hey, you, you're the descendant of George Washington? Me too. So I can trust you. I can, you, you can give me this banana now. So, so before, before getting into kind of some of the 21 lessons for the 21st century, um, because this, this is related, do you think sapiens as a species are more violent than other species have been? Because you mentioned, for instance, in sapiens, we get to Australia, which is in itself an amazing feat. Like, how do we get... How did we go over the water and even know that Australia is there. was going to be there? But then within two or 3,000 years, any species that could potentially hurt us is extinct. Mm-hmm. Like, do you think, we, do you think it's, it's humans that are naturally violent? Or would any species be violent and we happen to have this ability to, no, to I, work I together? Some species are definitely more violent than others. And uh, humans are quite violent. And chimpanzees are also violent. Maybe not the bonobos, but certainly the common chimpanzees are quite violent. The big difference is simply that we are far more powerful. It's a bit like with children and adults. Children are not nicer than adults. They are just uh, weaker than adults. So most of the murders in the world are committed by adults, not because adults are more evil, simply because adults are more powerful. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, the transition between childhood and adulthood, eighteen to ages 18 to 22. Mm-hmm. That's probably the most violent age. Yeah. You know, when kids have the physical power of an adult. Yeah, but if you, if you go even, even a step further and you think about the really big mass murderers, like Hitler and Stalin and Mao and all these people, they're in their 40s and 50s and 60s. So again, uh, um, they are not necessarily... I'm not sure that Hitler would be the kind of guy you would be afraid to meet in a dark alley. Uh, there are much worse people to meet in a dark alley than Hitler. But I feel like when, this is a joke. <laughs> no, really. <laughs> I mean, comedy club. <laughs> but, but, I mean, he's not dangerous on yeah. the level of an individual you meet in some dark corner at night. He's dangerous when you put him in charge of a country. Or in which, charge of a a storytelling machine. Oh, in charge of a storytelling machine. Because it was yeah. a propaganda machine, basically, that mm-hmm. created the fascism that he, that he spread. Yes. So, um, so it's a different kind of, of evil. And uh, in, in this sense, it's not necessarily, it's not that we are more evil than chimpanzees. We are in charge of a far more powerful system. So, and therefore, all our weaknesses, our fears, our hatreds can result in mass murder on a scale that is far beyond what the most vicious chimpanzee can accomplish. So, so then, you know, 
bringing this into the present day and, and your 21 lessons for the 21st century, you start to look at how today's technologies may have exceeded our ability to essentially evolve with them. Yeah. Um, because we still have the same DNA we had, let's say, 70,000 years ago. And our challenge now is what do we do? We got to look at all the worst case scenarios and these and ask the questions, which is what you do in this book. So, you know, one of them being, you know, what does the rise of data mean towards free will, which in turns, what does it mean towards our liberal philosophies of democracy and so on? You also look at, you know, essentially the rise of AI and robotics and what does this mean for, for moving our middle class to a useless class? Like, mm -hmm. what would you say across these lessons, there's just common theme of we're, we're losing power to the, to the machines that, that we created and that some part of us might merge with. Like, what's your, what's mm -hmm. your worst case scenario? Oh, the worst case scenario. Uh, we have three big problems. Uh, humanity has three, three big problems in the 21st century. And these are nuclear war and climate change and technological disruption. And each of them is enough to destroy human civilization on, on, by itself. And when you combine them, you get a really toxic mix. And, and there's, there's another characteristic of all three, which is that globalism could maybe, you know, basically viewing civilization as one global society mm -hmm. could potentially uh, temper the risk. Yes. But we're not, we're probably not, you know, at the end of Sapiens, we get this sense that we're on on the direction of globalism. Mm -hmm. But but the reality is there's volatility along the way. Yes. And, we, and we may not get to globalism in time because there's yeah. nationalism and, mm -hmm. and so on right now. We, we are still much more united than in any previous time in history. We are far more connected. Uh, and we also, there are more and more ideas and institutions that are common to all people across the world. Uh, whether it's in politics, whether it's in economics, everybody uses the dollar, even ISIS liked to, uh, to have do dollars. Uh, certainly when it comes to science, to things like medicine, how to build a hospital, how to cure a disease, how to build a bomb, everybody agrees on that. You, it's not like a thousand years ago when you had very different medical systems and medical theories in different parts of the world. Uh, take something like the, uh, I don't know, the FIFA Football World Cup uh, just a few months ago. Try to get Argentinians and French and Japanese a thousand years ago all, all to come to Russia and play a game together. Absolutely impossible. Not just because you don't have the transportation and the Russians don't even know that America exists. The, uh, it's also because there is not a single game which everybody plays across the world. I mean, to think about the situation today when everybody, almost everybody, maybe not Americans, I, I hear that here football is not a big thing, but at least potentially, you, you do have some football, just potentially, that kids all over the world play exactly the same game according to exactly the same rules. An Argentinian meets an English football hooligan and they can speak about the offside rule and they know exactly what we're talking about. There is nothing like it a thousand years ago. There is not a single game that all humans play everywhere. Uh, so you can't have something like that. We are far more united than ever before in this sense, but we are not united enough. In order to deal with any of these three big problems, nuclear war, climate change, and technological disruption, we need very significant global cooperation because it should be absolutely clear 
none of these problems can be solved on the national level by a single government. And I think the fear is, is that, let's take nuclear war, the fear is that the technology will increase so fast, meaning it'll be easier and cheaper to make a nuclear weapon, mm-hmm. that we don't evolve globalism enough to to basically meet the, the challenge. Yeah, or another big problem, which is becoming more and more severe these days, is that as AI develops, it could completely destabilize the, uh, the balance of power, the nuclear balance of power. In the kind of golden age of the Cold War, we, when you had the, the, the balance of power between the Soviets and the Americans, it was based on, uh, on the robustness of the weapon systems that you knew, that I knew, that you knew that uh, you can destroy me. There is nothing I can do to protect myself. But the promise of the new technologies, uh, and especially the rise of AI, is that you don't know. Maybe I have already taken over your nukes, and you just don't know it, because you don't realize that I have planted all kinds of logic bombs and Trojan horses and malware inside the system that controls your nukes. And I know it, but you don't know it. Uh, And this is extremely destabilizing. In such a situation, uh, we are in a much worse position than in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Because if you don't, if you cannot be sure that you have control over your nukes, there is no longer uh, an effective deterrence. And there is an increasing temptation to use it before you lose it. Okay, maybe, maybe now we have control over them. But at the rate that China is developing their AI, in 10 years, we could be completely overtaken by them. And we can't even trust our nukes at that time because maybe they already control them. I, I remember um, looking at a company where they're involved in cybersecurity and these guys were telling me that essentially every single company in the Fortune 500 and every electric grid is attacked all day long from basically every country in the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like there's no, there's no, and, and I said to them, well, can you, is there a way to fix the problem? And their answer, and they were all PhDs, their answer was, whoever they are is smarter than us. <laughs> like the bad guy is always somehow smarter than the good guy in these situations because the bad guy is just willing to do anything and the good guy has limitations. Mm-hmm. So, so essentially we can assume that that angle you're going down is going to have a bad end. Yeah, I mean, in an AI, in an AI arms race, whoever wins, humanity will lose. We are getting into an AI arms race. It's maybe the most important thing that is happening on the geopolitical level now in the world is that we are entering... Five years ago, it wasn't like it. But now we are already in the midst of an AI arms race. And this is a terrible situation because it almost guarantees that all our worst nightmares about AI will be realized. Because every country will say, we don't want to do this terrible thing. We don't want to develop this dangerous technology. But we cannot trust our rivals to abstain. So we have to do it first. But, you know, you can also assume still, um, if we assume they control us, they might not know that we control them. Yes. And there's still that kind of game. Uh, but it, it makes it worse because the, 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 the less you know, the more difficult it is 
to create effective deterrence and the greater the temptation to just go ahead and do something. Well, what about, you, you mentioned also the, the potential for uh, one class of humans to use AI to enhance their abilities, either ha- enhance their brains or use biological innovations to enhance their physical skills. In a sense, uh, you know, another problem we potentially face in this century is the splitting apart of two yeah. species, like the mm-hmm. superhumans and the regular homo sapiens. Is that is that realistic or does the fact that technology always get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper make anything that's accessible to the superhumans ultimately accessible to everyone? Well, ultimately maybe, but there is a question of a time gap. Mm-hmm. If it becomes cheap in 100 years, it's not enough because during these 100 years, there will be enormous new developments. So the gap will become bigger and not smaller. Mm-hmm. And you, we cannot just assume, in adv- it, it could happen, nobody knows, but we cannot assume in advance that every major technological advance in things like bioengineering or, or direct brain-computer interfaces will very quickly become very cheap and very common and everybody will enjoy it. At least some technologies could remain very expensive, very kind of lucrative, and uh, will create an unprecedented gap between the rich and the poor because for the first time in history, you will be able to really translate economic inequality into biological inequality. Right, so right now, it might have been the case that for a few years, some people could afford iPads and others couldn't, which wasn't really a big deal, Mm -hmm. but it will become a big deal depending on the, the technological innovation. And, and, and the time it takes yeah, to and, reach the poor. And even today, if you look at something like big data algorithms, so yes, everybody has smartphones, almost everybody. Uh, this is part of the system. They need you to have a smartphone so they can gather the data about you. It's, it's really, it doesn't make you more powerful. It makes the big data algorithms more powerful. And in contrast to the smartphones, which are now almost ubiquitous, the big data algorithms they belong to a very, very small segment of society and a very small segment of the world even. It's not that like every country has uh, these big corporations. Uh, just very few countries control or, 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 or own almost all the data of the world. And it's not like they're going to share it. Like Google's never going to share the data except with the gov- U.S. government. Mm-hmm. Facebook's never going to share their data. It's not like they're going to say... Here's all the data to everybody, well, unless, I don't you, know unless about you buy. Never. I don't know about never. I mean, you can have all kinds of, it can come from within, it can come from pressure from without, regulations, political debates, but this is the kind of, it will definitely necessitate uh, political action. So, and, so this is another problem that you mentioned. And then another problem you mentioned in terms of technological innovation is that the rise of AI and automation could uh, cr- turn the middle class into a useless class. So we're no longer shelving shelves at Walmart. Mm-hmm. These people are just simply, as opposed to everybody who worked on horses eventually worked on cars, it's not the case that everyone who is going to be replaced by AI will have a new industry to work in because yeah. now the computers will be doing mm-hmm. the jobs. Yeah, there will be new jobs, but most of the new jobs will be high-skilled jobs that demand all kinds of creative abilities and all kinds of, of, of highly professional uh, uh, skills. And for many people, it might prove impossible to retrain themselves, both because they lack the necessary education, they lack the necessary financial uh, uh, support, 
to have a year or two to retrain themselves, maybe because they lack the psychological resources to but, reinvent themselves. But, but like, it's, it's not like, you know, in the, in, like in 1920, if you were a farm worker and you were laid off because they now have these tractors, they don't need you, so you move to Detroit or some big city and you go to work in a, in a tractor factory. And this is, uh, you don't need to spend a lot of time on, or effort to reskill yourself as a worker in a big factory. But if you lose your job as a truck driver in 2030 to a self-driving vehicle, and there is a new opening in designing software, it's going to be a lot more difficult uh, to retrain yourself as a software designer than it was to retrain yourself as a factory worker. Although I wonder if like the profits generated by these corporations who are using these new productive technologies, I wonder if those profits themselves will flow into society and create more opportunities or more jobs or more, I don't know, we can't That's, we can't that's a guess. political question. Yes, I mean, there are some very positive scenarios ahead of us. We've been focusing on the negative scenarios, but there are wonderful scenarios that, yes, uh, lots of jobs disappear, but it's the crappy jobs that disappear that people needed to do because they needed money, they needed food, but nobody really wanted to be a truck driver on the road 12 hours a day. Um, and if you can, for example, tax the big corporations that uh, enjoy the enormous benefits of the automation revolution and use these revenues to support the unemployed truck drivers and enable them either to retrain themselves or to realize whatever dreams they have in life, uh, this could be a very good thing. The thing is that you need uh, a completely different political system to do it. And even more importantly, you need to do it on a global and not on a national level. Because of one of the biggest dangers is that the automation revolution will completely destroy the economies of some countries, whereas the benefits will go to a very small number of highly developed countries. And if you don't have a global safety net, the consequences for billions of people could be catastrophic. It, it's exactly these problems, though, that could be the, the last, the final thing preventing us from globalism, just because of what you just said. So climate change, for instance, will at least initially benefit some countries and, yeah. and hurt others. So there's, there's, there's going to be a last-minute tendency to stick to nationalism mm -hmm. so that not everybody you know, shares in the pain. Yeah, th that's one of the biggest dangers. That um, it's certainly for the last five years, we are heading in the opposite direction of global cooperation. And many of the pressures and also many of the opportunities of the new technologies and of climate change uh, are going to tempt people further in the direction of nationalism and isolationism. So, so in terms of we as individuals, okay, we have these problems and there's the many other lessons you describe in the 21 lessons for the 21st century. But as an individual, how do I start to cope with this? Now, one of the things you mentioned is questioning, like not, not allowing this myth of free will mm -hmm. to think I understand myself, but questioning all the ideologies around me. And then you also mentioned in the book, you know, your style of meditation, but maybe kind of more internal reflection to, 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 to build the, the muscle of self-reflection. Mm -hmm. What what other what or 
what ways do you use to kind of, you know, fight these potential catastrophes as an individual? <laughs> well, and the, and the individual, uh, it's it's pretty limited what you can do. You can certainly try and build your skills, and you can certainly increase the your own self-understanding, your own powers of introspection and self-knowledge. And meditation is certainly very helpful in that. And there are many different techniques uh, uh, to do it. But it's not kind of the silver bullet that will solve all the problems and that will save humanity. We need to collect, we need collective action on, on all levels. So as an individual, because it's very limited what you can accomplish as an individual, one very good idea is join an organization. Uh, there, is, there are so many organizations out there. And when people organize, they can usually accomplish far more than when they try to work as individual activists. Do you think a social media platform like Facebook is conducive towards creating global organizations that could address some of these issues? They work both ways. On the one hand, they make it easier for people to to uh, to communicate and to form organizations with like-minded people, maybe even on the other side of the planet. On the other hand, they can also lock people inside these digi- digital worlds when you think that just uh, uh, doing likes or having signing online petitions, you've done your, your share. Uh, and actually, you need to go out into the offline world to what? make a... Re- <laughs> Yes, yes, you need to go out to the offline world to make sometimes a real change. And um, and so if, if you are really troubled about these things, join an organization. This is a very one of the best advices that, that I can give. There is so much more that even an organization of 50 people can do compared with 50 individual activists, mm. each doing my own thing. So, so you know, uh, we have to wrap soon. I just want to again say <laughs> what a great book uh, by Yuval Noah Harari, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. But I really feel like all three of your books, it's like a, it's like a trilogy. You have to read all three. They're just so amazing. I sort of feel like eight years ago, you must have had a tumor or a stroke. <laughs> like you were writing about 12th century medieval fighting yes. based on these autobiographical texts of knights from the round table or whatever. And then suddenly you write the three smartest books ever written in mankind. Like what happened in your life that you just said, oh, I'm going to be the smartest man alive instead of just some academic? Um, well, one thing that happened, I got tenure at university. <laughs> that so helps. I, I could do whatever I wanted. And I no longer had to fear the publish or perish, uh, you know, roller coaster. Um, but a lot of people get tenure. Yeah, that's true. But for many people, it's too late. <laughs> By the time they get tenure, they forgot what they really wanted to do. Uh, and, and somehow I, I still remembered. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's partly, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's luck and partly it's it's a lot of help that I got from many other people. I mean, you look at a book and you think, okay, the, the author must have, must have been a very smart person. But there are many other people be, uh, uh, responsible for the fact that you are now reading this book. Uh, I know just how to read books. 
But like the real PR genius behind the success of all three books is, is my husband, uh, Itzik, uh, without whom I think nobody would have heard about Sapiens or Homo Deus or 21 Lessons. Did, did, did he put you on Coursera? Because that's where I, for, before Sapiens came yeah. out in America, I saw you he on had, Coursera. Uh, he had a very big fight with the university. The university wanted to do this online course for, for Coursera and they brought this, they put it in a basement of the university I had like, I, I, there was no teleprompter. I was reading from a text on, on, on paper as if I was in the 1970s uh, in some, in the early days of television. And the photographer that they brought kept falling asleep. During, and, and like one time he just fell on the camera and the camera fell down. And, <laughs> and, yet it's and, still and the... he, he fought and Itzik fought with, with the, the university to get proper budget and to do it in a proper way. Uh, and and this is how the, this, the the Coursera course came out and and like that, um, you you need like you need an entire village to raise a child. You need an entire village to to get a book out there. But I think also important, like what you said in the very beginning about not having a phone, that probably saves he you. He carries the phone also. This is why I I, I have the luxury. What if, what if of... you're separate? How do you get in touch with each other? <laughs> uh, <laughs> we have to meet. <laughs> I'm going to try this no phone thing because mm -hmm. I feel like that takes an hour or two a day because you get on the phone. It's not a the phone is just an app on your phone now. Like the rest <laughs> is just like checking nonsense yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's on. also actually, it's actually the new status symbol. If you're really important, you don't have a phone. If you work for somebody, you have a phone. That's, that's interesting. <laughs> well, okay. Yuval Noah Harari, thanks once again for coming on the podcast. Uh, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, but I also recommend uh, Sapiens and Homo Deus. Is there going to be a fourth book? Are you thinking of it? <laughs> I don't know. You know, uh, you, I was going to give you an idea. You should set up a little company advising these major companies about what to do with their big data and advising governments how to how to deal with some of these issues. <laughs> ah, I'll think could about be a multi-million dollar company. <laughs> I, I'll think about it. I have a feeling you're not going to think too much about it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you. Hey, look at you. Florist by day, student by night. Student by day, nurse by night. Since 1998, Penn State World Campus has led the charge in online education, offering access to more than 175 in-demand programs taught by our expert faculty. We offer flexible schedules, scholarships, and tuition plans to help you reach your educational goals online. Penn State World Campus delivers on your time. Click the ad or visit worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. That's worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more.